We know the kitchen is where it all goes on. We chew the fat, make all of life's big decisions and eat straight from the tin when no one's watching. Join me, Anna Barnett, as I head straight to the heart of our guest home, where I swoon over interiors. I'm impressed by the sheer scale of a fridge and cover the most organised of freezers. We dig deep. Discuss career highs, career lows, condiment shelves and so much more. There's of course plenty of serious food chat. Each week we'll finish things off with our guests' best sandwich efforts and possibly a snoop in their fridge. Today finds me amongst raw pastures, in the middle of the New Forest and at the beating heart of one of Britain's most popular stately hotels. My guest today has worked amongst the highest echelons of the culinary world, from molecular gastronomy to three-star dining and a bit of everything in between. Today sees him at the helm of Hartnett Holder & Co, alongside revered chef Angela Hartnett. Here he celebrates produce in its simplest form and with a respect for the land and environment around him. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Luke Holder. Luke, welcome to The Filling and kind of to your own garden kitchen. Thank you very much. On a beautiful day. It is a really beautiful day. I'm very pleased Mm. to be here. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, excited. We're back up and open, which has been good with lots of new plans and some new ideas. And, you know, it just feels great with the vaccine coming and the weather coming. It just feels like we're turning that corner. Yeah, this summer is going to be a good one. And this is actually the first weekend that you will have been open. Is that right on the terrace? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we opened on Monday. It's our first weekend and I imagine it's going to be heaving out here in the next couple of hours. And how has it been getting everything back up and running? Good, actually. I think... um, we started planning the reopening on the second week of January. So there was, you know, sustainability was something that we wanted to put back on the agenda because I think that sort of all went a bit left field under the first lockdown. We've got obviously the alfresco dining. And so that was a little bit of a change to to our normal systems that we we, we operate with but we've doubled the restaurant capacity now because now we can do 70 outside and when we open inside that'll be you know 140 that we can seat oh wow gosh that's that's a big it's (laughs) a big change which is why you know we've had to sort of um plan it's planned slightly differently because you know we, we, we there's the appetite is there you know only two i think it's two out of every five hospitality places have the opportunity to be able to sit outside and when you're you know you're sitting in a new forest on a day like today the sun's out and you know you're sitting out there it's perfect yeah i feel very grateful to be and we're not going to go backwards i can't imagine we're gonna you know once we move inside we're going to get rid of the terrace this is going to be something that's going to stay for the long term hopefully and how much of a challenge will that be for you in terms of the kitchen and like you know upping the numbers yeah i think there's there are certain I always say, you know, build the system, manage the system, and then you can manage the individuals in the system. But I think in some ways, you know, we've been, Italian food is quite approachable and simple anyway, you know, but one of the the key things that we're we're just about to start introducing is, is just simple little things like bowls of cockles and clams and langsies trying to support the shellfish industry which has been hard, hit hard with brexit right and one of the key things that, that's gone into a lot of our planning actually because it's not just the pandemic brexit's also brought another level to everything and we've we're really pushing the sort of microeconomic situation right. you know we i think we're going to be 87 percent british produce by the end of this year that's great so that's been really fun exploring that even things like we didn't realize because the quinoa and chickpeas and all of those sort of Ancient stuff grain. that yeah that we've that we've we've always associated as stuff that we've brought in from abroad yeah they're being grown over here in the UK now and so we've we're revamping our uh, spa restaurant we've got raw and cured down there yeah. which has always had a healthy food spin on it but we've brought a lot of that produce in with uh, high air miles and and, and, a, right. and a, a lot a big carbon footprint but since we since brexit started and and there's now been complete we've been really looking to british producers and there's an incredible amount of up and coming young producers out there and yeah. farmers, you know, and particularly the farming industry is really sort of galvanized to raise the flag of British. 
And so I've been surprised at how much opportunity there's been and how much we could, we've been able to switch from stuff that we've always thought was traditionally that we're going to have to bring in from abroad. Right. And so, yeah, I'm feeling really positive about it all. That's exciting. And you actually have Amelia Freer work with you here at Lime, yeah. don't you? And she's she was actually a previous guest on the podcast. Yeah. I'm a I very big that. fan. Yeah. But yeah. And she really also kind of plays into this wellness kind of element that Lime would very much kind of shout well, about. A, she had a big effect on, on us because at first, you know, the first couple of meetings, it was, do we have an Amelia Freer dish on? And I just felt that sold everything a bit short because right. we didn't want to... Amelia is an amazing person and she's been, you know, she's brought, you know, healthy food to the masses in a really approachable way. Yeah. And so we wanted to sort of bring her philosophy in rather than just a dish. And right. it affected our staff food offering. It affected the food offering and across the board, really. And made me realise a little bit more that, you know, we can't always just be meat centric. And so... You know, I think the staff now, staff food is always a contentious issue within a hotel. Yeah. You know, a hotel like this, you've got the spa team who obviously, you know, want something healthy. You've got the housekeeping team who wants something a little bit more, you know, uh, robust. And traditionally, there's always been, you know, kitchens. Uh, it's an afterthought. All, it's a, it, yeah. It, it's always been crap food. I've been guilty of it myself. I've, I've served shocking staff food over the years. <laughs> I don't believe it. I won't believe it. <laughs> but, you know, with, with, we now said the food that we serve to the guests, to the staff. So today's staff food will be the special salads that we're serving within Raw and Cure today. So we just make more of it. So every because what you start realizing is when you feed people badly, when you're under pressure they and you become a little bit lethargic and you find, you blame work, but you don't realize it's your diet. Yeah, So when you eat well, your attitude, you're your feeling approach good, to mental it, health, all of those things. Exactly. Yeah. And I actually loved Amelia Freer because one of her pillars of health and one of the things she really advocates is adding in. So adding whatever you can that will bring extra nutrition, yeah. nutrition to that dish so she had like she had loads of amazing examples and I now it really stuck with me because every time I kind of cook or make dinner I'm like what else could I just throw into this that yeah. might be of nutritional benefit but even, even at home it's happened you know like grating courgettes into a bolognese sauce for the kids so yeah. they you know trying to get them to eat a courgette is, is hard work <laughs> But actually grating that veg into it really makes a big difference. Yeah. So I have to ask you, um, have you been out of the kitchen this year? What has this last uh, kind of pandemic year it's looked like for you? Weird effect. I think I've never had so much distance from kitchen life. And work. And yeah. And actually, but that distance has given you a little bit more perspective on the changes. Kitchens have always traditionally been really poor at dealing with dietaries. And we're, and we're very, too, you know, one dimensional when it comes to dietaries, you know, vegetarian, we're sort of reluctantly accepting veganism <laughs> and then we can, and gluten free. But I think the world's changed now. It's not necessarily uh, life threatening. It's now lifestyle choice. Yeah. And you can be gluten free for lunch and have a pizza in the evening. And we need to be able to roll with that better as a kitchen and as a as an offering here at Limewood. And I think is that what you've kind of spent this last year really focus, mm, refocusing on how that, that can work? And uh, you know, this lockdown, we did a lot. I did a lot of fermentation at home, right? Oh, and nice. I did a lot of reading on fermentation. And I took part in a COVID dietary survey, right? Which was talking about uh, people having the strength to fight COVID yeah. and the diets that you're consuming and giving you the opportunity to do that. And fermented food rated really highly when this... So like gut health and... Yeah, and I right. really think we do underestimate that. And I don't want to sound all faddy and stuff, but it has affected us and our offering. And now we're, we're folding that into the staff food offering. We're, right. We've started a fermentation programme downstairs, which should be ready by this time next week, some of the early stages of it. Yeah. And actually, one of the, what was That's interesting, exciting. even on Twitter, when the pandemic was in its full throes and we, we saw great restaurants like Noma, and I don't know if anybody saw it, but they put out, uh, they gave away all of their fermented food and the... What shocked me was just literally the tonnage of preserved food items that they had. They had 300 kilos of fermented uh, Giroles. What was the reason for giving that up? Because they would go off or? No? Uh, yeah, I just think they just right. didn't feel they could get the restaurant back up and running time. But wow. what it made you realise that it, fermentation is not just great for your own you know, bio health, but actually it's a great way of preserving the season for longer. Yeah, and they, that's kind of very common to those Nordic regions, yeah. isn't it? Well, you know, we, we makes sense. As a you chef, harvest. we missed we missed asparagus last year. It was a really weird moment. You know, I think that's the first time since I've been 
a fully formed adult that asparagus hasn't featured largely in my life. And this, <laughs> I like that. That's how this will be forever. It won't be the pandemic for you. It'll be the year with, with no asparagus. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the sort of conversation that bounced around the kitchen. And this year it was like, well, we're going to buy tons of it. We're going to preserve it. We're going to ferment it so we can see that season longer out than, yeah. uh, than necessarily the weather will offer us. Do you know what? I've kind of really thought about this. And do you think what people have wanted to eat has kind of shifted throughout the pandemic, that kind of comfort mm. food and that pull to comfort food? because of the kind of times we're living in. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess, you know, that focus really was on, it was all the sourdoughs. And I know yeah. it was learning, but it was also that kind of, I guess, the craving for comfort. Yeah, absolutely. And do you think that's going to stick or do you think you're feeling the shift in that now that the seasons are changing and we're kind of normality hopefully is beginning mm. to resume? Have, you know, has that impacted your menus? Has that been something that's... that's You've been it's definitely, conscious definitely of. impacted our menus because I think you put the Amelia Freer thing, you put the pandemic thing, you put the, the, the lifestyle changes that people are going through. Our offering here today is very, very different to what it was 10 years ago, 11 years ago when I started. Do I think some of these things will continue after the pandemic? There'll be those that have grown confident to make carry on sourdough at home and yeah. realise it's not such a headache. There are yeah. those that just did it and just got on the gravy train and got straight back <laughs> off it. And I think what we're I think what we're starting to see is there's a real rush now to come out and be cooked by somebody else yeah. and enjoy all of that. But I think there is going to be a little bit of the weekend where you think, you know, I'm going to make a sourdough on yeah. a Sunday or I'm going to do, do a little bit of this. Or... Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm letting you know that I'm very excited to be cooked for today. <laughs> <laughs> I've made this journey specifically to be cooked for. Well, we're going to fill be you up. For. I know you've just had a, a pasta ban and we're going to... Uh, I'm three gonna, months gonna, clean. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's we're gonna, never before You're going to be back on, the, back on the wagon straight <laughs> after this, I think. <laughs> You've had an extremely successful career working amongst the upper echelons of the cooking world. But what did your pre-chef years look like and how did you get into cooking? How did it all begin for you? I grew up in the Middle East, so I was always exposed very early on to a wide food culture. And actually, we were just talking about halloumi yesterday in the kitchen. And we growing up in the Middle East, you couldn't have bacon. So one of the things that we'd always have on the beach was grilled halloumi, fried eggs on Arabic bread with brown yeah. sauce, which was always a bit Brown weird, sauce? But- yeah, HP brown sauce. <laughs> so, and it, it was actually banned in the Middle East along with Coca-Cola and other bits and pieces in the early years. So hang on, so what took you out to the Middle East? What, at what age did you So come? I left, I, I went out there at one. My dad was part of the chemical construction. So we moved to Sharjah, which is just down the road from Dubai. Right, right. And I remember Dubai having one road. And wow. seeing it now, you know, I went back in 2004 and 2007. It's a very different place. Does it feel like home for you? How long were you there for? 11 years. 11 years. No, no, it doesn't feel like it feels what I would say is uh, someone who grew up in the Middle East. There was a lot of freedom when we were younger and we were able to just go to any beach. Now all the beaches are all owned by hotels yeah. and, probably, and you can't go. I find it it's a little bit Las Vegasy now. It's yeah. quite soulless. It's not yeah. my type of vibe anymore. But growing up in the Middle East, it was very different. We used to live, you know, in a with UAE nationals. I was fortunate that, you know, I was privately educated, but I was terrible at school. And what but I, but being privately educated meant by the time I did come back to the UK, I was a year ahead of everybody else. We you were still take, in good shape, even though you were bad te- yeah, at school. Exactly. But yeah, so I grew up in the Middle East, moved back to the UK. And what did food look like for you out in the Middle East? Sorry. Yeah, it was uh, wonderful. It was a lot of Indian and Middle Eastern flavours. Yeah. One of the you know classic things was just eating a tomato. Tomatoes over there were, it was a big part. My dad was a quite a character in... And he always cooked, not that he was a, a, a chef, but he, he'd, he'd always cook. And he'd take us to places like Ravi's, which is a very, for those who, who are in the know in Dubai, Ravi's is a classic restaurant right. and serving curries and one of the best fried breads that you're ever going to eat in your life. But I remember sitting in my dad sweating, eating these hot curries and me just eating tomatoes. And he used to tell us, you know, tomatoes and yogurt were the way to To, to, to cool battle. the curry. Yeah, cool the curries. <laughs> yeah. And did your mum cook? What was it? What was food like at home for you? My mum, no, she wasn't a great cook but we still have on the menu here a, a nod towards one of the things she used to cook oh, a I'm lot dying to, to know now. was uh, marmite mushrooms on toast marmite mushrooms I so yeah. it was fried mushrooms a bit of marmite uh she used to put corn flour and butter and water in it but we do it with a little bit of creme fraiche here now yeah nice but it was Quite my mum's yeah my mum's was you know from manchester and oh, so is my, my dad but she wasn't a cook uh in any way and, and quite simple in approach but my dad was always the guy who would uh knock out a chinese banquet or oh, indians yeah. or flatbreads or halloumi on the beach whatever it yeah. was he was renowned my dad for being a great cook great and are there any like specific dishes that you really remember as a kid or did you do Sunday lunches? Did you still kind of, was there any nods to 
home comforts from the well, UK? No, not at all, actually. I like that. Because, and I found, I find that even now is reflected in my own attitude to what I cook at home. Right. So I very rarely cook a Sunday roast. Okay. I, I'm not a... Yorkshire pudding. See, I'm a three Yorkshire size. kind of. I'm a three Yorkshire pudding kind of gal. Uh, see, <laughs> like really, yeah. I'm like a pig. Well, but I love Yorkshire puddings, but I never feel. I, I if I if my go to cooking nowadays is is predominantly sort of Asian and Middle Eastern based. Okay. Oh, nice. Because I don't know. I've growing up even at 13, 14, I would try and cook uh, Chinese banquets and dab under egg fried rice and bits and pieces like that. But I think one of my earliest childhood memories of, of cooking was if anybody remembers the A-Team I used to have the A-Team toys and they were like a, a, yeah, I'm of. wearing some of his jewellery today I've got very thick gold chain on you see, I've got, you've yeah. got the BA moment going right <laughs> yeah. and I remember Murdoch I used to cook super noodles and I'd talk to the the, the, the figure Murdoch as if I was on TV so you know here we are right I'm going to start you know <laughs> and heat up these super noodles I mean you can transform them into a great noodle dish absolutely absolutely and, and you know it, it, it's amazing looking at the variety of super noodles now and I still have a, a soft spot for them you yeah. know to, on to a hangover on. or just day to day day to day you know Good. we're just about to introduce some amazing actually forward thinking super noodles to uh, that are plant based to the staff canteen down here to as, as another hot option for people yeah. to, to partake in during my um, three months of very low intake of carbohydrates and no pasta predominantly <laughs> which by the way has seen me lose some weight uh, yeah, and, and I don't know how you, you cope with that because I find pasta during the lockdown comfort food was a was a way to go and, and pasta and carbohydrates well we had a whole year so I had I had a good nine months of well all of the pasta yeah. prior to that <laughs> um, but yeah and I really, it really actually made me realise how much I did eat pasta yeah. <laughs> like, this is obscene you know I wouldn't even think about it but I've discovered or have kind of ended up trying these I can't actually remember the flour they're made of but you can actually get zero carbohydrate noodles mm. a, a mock pasta which I've not even bought myself to try because I just I don't agree with mm. it really but the noodles I can handle and they yeah. do a rice and so it's like it's high protein zero carbs very low calorie and once you know by the time you've thrown in all sorts of pastes yeah. and chilli and sesame oil absolutely and I'm like that's delicious and it's quick it's easy and it's accessible and I think that's you know one of the things that has been a challenge I, I imagine for a lot of people in lockdown is you know not everybody's a chef at home and you know but even as chefs you get bored of your own food sometimes and actually you know just having something simple and quick not a full-on commitment to the kitchen is what we all need in our yeah. life I found myself sort of okay sometimes I'd make an in a super noodle or those dried vermicelli noodles with a chicken stock that we'd yeah, make yeah. which is a bit of a posh version but you still <laughs> stick a bit of soy sauce and a bit of chili flake in it and you're, you're there yeah you know 100%. for oh, for no effort yeah and what does your kitchen look like at home? I always love to know because actually for the most part of these um, podcasts, we would record in people's yeah. uh, home kitchens because I, I always just think it's such an insight into people's worlds, how they yeah. live. Is your wife also in the food world? Who gets, she's not? No, she's not, no. Do you get the kind of say on the design of the kitchen, what's in well, there? It's interesting, we're about to just, we're planning on expanding our kitchen. So I hate my kitchen at the moment. Right. So we moved into our house about 10 years ago and what I really hate about most <laughs> kitchen designs nowadays is your back's always to people. So I like to cook on an island. Same. Where ah, people can that's swan the, around. It's the only you. way, yeah. It is, yeah. So have your stage. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Whereas at the moment I stare at a wall oh, and yeah, I'm in no. a corner. And the, the washing up can be facing the wall. That's yeah, where my exactly. husband is. I'm, I'm in front of people. I'm entertaining. I'm cooking. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And it's, you know, I want that Murdoch moment where I feel like I'm talking to the camera again. You know? <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. But I think cooking should be inclusive. And uh, I find most kitchen designs, it's very solitary. And I think, you know, I'm looking, if anybody's out there looking to have someone to help with the kitchen design. I'm, I'm, I can help you. I'm, <laughs> I'm renovating currently my second kitchen in three three years. Yeah. So I can really, we can sit down after exactly. this and we can really Perfect. go into it. I've got all sorts of hookups for you as well. But I, wanna, I, wanna, <laughs> I love that, the idea of having an island, you know, with a little grill in it, little plants yeah. in it, you know. Uh, even a little pizza oven. Recently, the Sage Workshop pizza yeah. oven came into my life. Yeah. And I keep really laughing at this because my only point of reference is my husband. But that is because we have been locked away together exactly. for the last year. Yeah. I do have other friends and other things going on other than him. We all feel a bit like that right now. But he, uh, being vegetarian, like home, I've just been making like sourdough pizza mm. bases. Yeah. And he, you know, especially when it first arrived, he was maybe four out of five kind of yeah. nights of the week. He's having a fresh pizza yeah. <laughs> that's like well, we've, delicious. We, we, actually, it's, it's funny you say it because we, we've... I've Cooked into minutes well exactly <laughs> well we've been doing the home pizza at home in you know the old frying pan under the grill, grill yeah and i think i pretty much 
perfected that technique and it's become a Friday night staple for us now. So the kids love it. Yeah, I bet. But one of the, the, the only problem is when you're at home is you can only cook one pizza at a time. So what you've you've got to try and do is change the mindset to a pizza night is is a slower night. It's a, it's a graze. It's one pizza, <laughs> we divide it between four, then we cook another one. Yeah. All right. So, but it's great in front of the TV because yeah. they don't need a lot of attention, you know, but yeah. it's all about the dough. Yeah, totally. You know, that's what it's all about. Have you got any... Oh, because this actually is a really great tip and maybe you would know this already, mm-hmm. I would presume. But um, I read somewhere that you should make sure you pat dry your mozzarella so that yeah. you try and take out as much yeah. of the water as possible Absolutely. so you don't... And rip it the night before, I think, uh, and leave okay. it in the fridge overnight. Right. Because the, the, the problem is you want a really good quality mozzarella, but if it's just too wet... Your pizza dough just becomes You've got a waterlogged situation, yeah, and you can't eat it because you know you know that, that you You're pick up that triangle cheat, yeah. and, the, and all the drop all the toppings <laughs> fall off, yeah. which is a, a sort of slightly disappointing. So, yeah, I think yeah we we tend to rip ours and leave it in the fridge overnight so it's slightly dry. And any, I hope that we'll just get into really specific fate of, uh, pizza talk. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, it's any, important. <laughs> and are you doing a sourdough base or? Yeah. Yes. So sourdough starter in there. Yeah, zero so zero I, flour. Yeah. So I use, so we have a mother ferment for the, for the bread, which yeah. is, you know, born in the first lockdown, probably with millions of other people at the moment. Yeah. But we take a bit of that. And then um, I got a really great little New York style because I like a really bubbly crust on yes. mine. Yeah, it's zero zero flat. I I do add a touch of dried yeast to it. Yeah, and then it, oh okay, it's dried dried yeast as well as well. So I it, I think it's it's three hundred seventy five grams of water, four hundred seventy five grams of flour, hundred grams of mother, eleven grams of salt, fifteen grams of olive oil, and three grams of yeast. Okay, I'm going to wipe times. this up and share it, share <laughs> this, and I'm going to make it myself. It's on my Instagram feed if you wanted to see the video. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do. <laughs> I do. We're committed to pizzas, so I absolutely you know, one do. Of the, some, uh, I worked with this great pizza guy once, and one of the best tips I ever had on pizza was don't cook your tomato sauce. Just take buy good quality tin tomato, add a little bit of salt, and then just crush it in your hand. Right. And then make sure anything that's going to burn, like your basil or parmesan, goes into the tomato base and put your mozzarella on top. Right. That uh, was, you know, and that tip just revolutionary because once you get the your parmesan in you with your tomato, you get a double umami hit there. Yeah. And then you're absolutely flying. <laughs> and any favourite brand of tomato, like tin tomato? I do, yeah. I like the uh, Rega one. And no joke, this morning, my my wife stopped me from buying 60 tins of uh, tin tomatoes. <laughs> I, you think you're back in the lockdown at the first one when everyone well, went I've crazy gone, buying yeah, tin well, tomato. But the thing is, you can, uh, this specific Rega brand, you can only get if you spend 60 quid free delivery, right? And I can't I'll justify <laughs> spending 13 quid on delivery. No. So I'm just going to buy 60 tins. It's yeah. a bit of a war chest, but I really do think that some, my wife thinks I'm bonkers, but I think if it's worth spending the money on the right product because the difference in the end result yeah. when people go oh you're a chef and it's not really my skills it's just my really picking know how we have a thing in the kitchen here we say you know spend more time sourcing it and less time cooking it find the right product yeah. and don't mess around with it yeah. it's a lot easier cooking that way I've also um, over the years really enjoyed a cherry tomato tinned cherry yeah. tomato yeah. because instantly you've got something that's already yeah. sweeter you're not ever adding yeah. kind of extra sugar or anything Absolutely. like that. But I think, you know, with tin tomatoes, it's always San Manzano. Whatever Sam Manzano, brand yeah. you get, it needs to be a, a, a DOP from San Manzano. I think those those, those soils really do make a difference. You know, that volcanic ash that it grows on. I know it sounds ridiculous, but no. this is where chefs get all sort of icky about the detail and it's it counts. tin tomatoes does does make a difference it does count was there a moment or experience that you can pinpoint as being pivotal in cementing your career in cookery so there's two moments really one was the decision to become a chef so I'd taken me and my best friends had uh, worked on a tomato farm saved up some money and took a year out and we we, we did the Trans-Siberian from Russia to China wow. and drove down the east side of China to Vietnam then up the west side of China, which was at that point was still Mao Zedong communist revolutionary type right. of experience where they didn't even recognize the dollar bill, which was the first time in my life where I thought I'm so far out here right now that, you know, we if we run out of money, we don't even know what a dollar bill is. It's not even usable on the west side. Then we drove across Tibet and then drove down the Tibetan plateau to Nepal and then uh, eventually on the bus journey after a, this long time traveling and not working, we were on a bus journey from... And how uh, old were you? Uh, 18. 18. Oh my God, that's a, a really brave... It was it was magical. But it really, 
incredible really and we were on this bus journey from Nepal to India and we were sat there me my best friend and his now wife decided what we wanted to do when we got back because we couldn't be tomato farmers anymore and I decided I was going to be a chef. Sarah said she was going to do uh, photography and Richard said he was going to uh, get into wine. And then a year later, I was working at the Michelin starred Orrery restaurant. Richard was working for a wine company and Sarah was a photo editor of the photographer magazine. Oh and so now they just... have their own vineyard in the south of France, <gasps> which we now produce wine with them. And wow. uh, yeah, it's really lovely. So growing up, did you know that you had this kind of passion for food or extra appreciation over other friends? Or... You don't, you're not aware of it at a time, but when you look back, you know, I think we, we used to have these, uh, you know, amazing holidays with our with extended family. I remember once... I must have been about seven or eight and we'd we were in this cottage in France and I ended up making this soup this sort of like a brothy type thing taking it upstairs and the, the everyone was sitting around we didn't have electricity in the in the house at that point and it was everyone sitting around these gas lamps and uh, playing cards and I remember my dad said oh, well, what have you got there I like, well I've just made myself a soup looking back it was quite weird looking back on it now but and then everybody tasted it loved it and I ended up having to go off and make some more for everyone and was it those little moments of kind of like such positive encouragement that you think no I want to yeah. continue to please well, I think, people you know, on I that wanna... bus journey when you're you know from being a tomato farmer and you're coming back and you're thinking you know what I need to start taking my life seriously you know it's been amazing this whole traveling experience but and I thought I just love food I love eating like when you're traveling you know we we are in some incredible places you know and and when you're driving across Tibet, you know, you're eating in people's homes and staying, wow. you know, there isn't hotels and stuff to stay at. And I think food reflects culture. It reflects an attitude and... And a connection to people. Yeah. I always think that that, even if you're not speaking the same language, you're... you're percent. you can connect well i remember we we walked down tiger leaping gorge before i think it was i think it's now been filled in that that then uh, that, that village is now gone but we ended up staying in this very humble home and you know it was literally a tent with a fireplace and an open and we slept in there the night and we were offered, um, they cooked for us that night. And I, to this day, I still can't quite figure out what it is we ate. But I know it was, and there was no language and you know, nobody spoke any right. English and we certainly didn't speak any Chinese. But it was a really magical moment. And that night, you know, there was two children and the, the husband and the wife and us three. But there was still a connection. Yeah. And it's just through the fact that they're cooking for us. We're there. And ironically, because we thought this was the guest house that was that, that, that people had said, you know, you need to walk for four hours and there's a guest house, you can oh stay God. there. And the next morning we left the house and this is no word of lie. We walked about 15 minutes down the road and there was the guest house. So we literally just imposed ourselves on somebody's somebody's home. home. And they were fine with <laughs> yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. I was like, all right. And we, you know, and it was just, you look back on those moments now and it's... It, incredible really yeah. and, and they do weave into your subconscious you know that you're going to live a life with food yeah and could you do you still have a distinct memory of the flavor of that meal yeah. and what was in it have you well, tried I mean, to recreate it, it's I, I, one of the things that i have tried to recreate not not that specifically but when people often ask if you could go anywhere right now and eat anything what would you do so we lived in thailand for for two years in uh, in koh samui in boput village and my wife and I, we failed with our business over there and ended up sort of, you know, going bankrupt, really. But we ended up having to live like Thai people. So, we, we you know, we, we lived within the Thai community. We, we lived off a Thai wage. Right. We lived off a, a Thai diet. But the chicken and rice guy at the end of Boput Village, he had a, a dressing that goes on the, the rice there. There was a tamarind-based thing that still to this day... I regret deeply that I never made the effort to go and spend time with him to figure out what that was because it is one of the most delicious memories I Talk have in me my life. Talk me through mind. it. I'm interested. So <laughs> if you imagine, uh, it's, it, I think it's based, over the years I've started getting a little bit closer to what I think it's based around. So it's the uh, like a Cantonese uh, style sauce. So it had tomato, tamarind, yeah. green chilli, garlic. Oh, my mouth's salivating. <laughs> Just talk about it. And I'm leaning in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And uh sauce and I just think the ties are literally the way they balance they're just umami 
packed. Citrus. But, uh, yeah. Everything's so aggressive. Like when you look at French cookery, it's all about the subtleties. Like, can you just, you know, yeah. the richness, the creaminess, the subtle toes. And, and actually, I'm, I like things a the bit punchier. Yeah. Like, I like the fact that Thai, you know, Thai food is super salty, you know, yeah. super aggressive, super spicy, super acidic. And, and oh everything is addictive. Yeah. against itself. You know, it's like you're awake, you're with, alive. Yeah. <laughs> powering on with that fish sauce and then trying to temper it with lime juice and chicken. Yeah. And I really love that simple, aggressive, full on uh, mm. experience. It was a very humbling experience in Thailand because. Once we'd embedded with the community there, we used to get discount as the, as, as farang in locals in local restaurants. So, right. and then you realise you're eating for like thirty p. It, it, <laughs> it's 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 actually quite embarrassing just how because it, they, a lot of them work for a lot of the Thai uh, the, the Thai staff. You know, they obviously work with us and really. So eat can in their I family ask what did you what did you set up out there? So well, there was two things. We went over there initially with friends of the family to open their hotel. Right. Uh, but it was a very small sort of B&B, like 12 rooms, and to do a food offering. And I come straight out of London and I had no idea what I was doing, really. Right. And didn't really read the room of what the food offering should be. Right. Then ironically, and we sort of fell out with the family right. and uh, we ended up opening up next door uh, right. with another pe- another another group of friends and we opened uh, what was is now known as B1 Spa and it was uh, we had a restaurant on the top that had no white sugar no white flour you know that was all local produce right. it had a healthy tint to it and we had you know sort of uh, isolation tanks that you could float in and, and 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 meditate in and and other bits and pieces and it's interesting when you when you live with the the Thai community some sometimes a bit upsetting because you know we weren't doing very well financially but I still ended up kicking out some of the some of the guests because they just think all Thai women are just there for prostitution wow. and whatever else okay. and and I, ironically my restaurant manager was called Kun Porn and <laughs> didn't didn't always go down too well with with some of the guests but. They are wonderful, wonderful people. Uh, I love generous, them. kind. They're generous. They're kind. Of, you know, you eat in their homes. You know, they're and once that you get to know them, like I had this great story where we we had our moped and uh, I went to Copenhagen to have a party for the weekend, and so you know we'd I'd left my. Is that where they do all the full moon parties? Yeah, yeah. and uh, or further north, right? No, no, they're yeah. It's 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 literally the opposite island to Koh Samui, right, and right. they do all the full full moon parties there. But some of it is very commercialised. But there is a subculture out there where some of the Thais and some of the you know the, the, the Westerners who live there get a little bit deeper into the forest. It's a little bit away from the the, the, the manicness of those parties. Yeah. I left my moped by the... Which um, bit did you indulge in? Hang on. <laughs> I, I, did, I'm, I, got me, I indulged in everything that was out there. It was, <laughs> it was you know, a really wonderful time of my life. Yeah. And we ended up leaving my moped by the, the, the harbour where you get the boat across. And I came back and I came back to work and, and porn, couldn't porn was saying, how did your weekend go? So it's great, but uh, somebody's nicked my moped. And she said, oh, really? So she said, oh, hang on a second. Made a phone call. 15 minutes later, my moped came in. She goes, oh, couldn't Luke, we didn't realise it was yours. It's like, <laughs> fine. <laughs> because if, you, if you don't know the people, that just gets nicked. <laughs> it gets nicked. There's an insurance thing. You know, it's, right, just, right. it's just, you know. People it's, getting by. It's people getting by, you know. And I, and I felt really quite... Uh, part of the yeah it was inner really, circle. really really lovely actually yeah <laughs> that almost theft yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was actually a really joyous we thing we wouldn't have stolen it off you you're such a nice guy we just we <laughs> steal it off the others you know and it's like well that's fine everyone gets by that's a way to make a living yeah yeah um tell me a bit about your time working kind of in the world of molecular gastronomy was it stefan Bouchelzer, yeah um he's so he'd he'd um been working in two mission he's very french been working in two mission star restaurant in new york and and seen dubai as his opportunity to to make a name for himself and at the time you know the whole uh el bully and the fat duck was sort of you know on that upward projection and everything was about taking a piece of produce and turning it into everything it isn't yeah so you know taking a carrot and turning it into 15 different ways of being a carrot but yeah. don't allow yourself to actually serve a carrot and it was great but and I, and it was my first forage back to Dubai because 
I'd had this weird moment where we'd been living in Thailand, we'd been living in Koh Samui, we weren't making any money. And I was getting to the point where my debts accumulating in the UK could not be sustained by the income I was right. earning in the... That's uh, frustrating. It is. So I, <laughs> we needed to sort of get out. And and at that point, we'd got a bit knee deep and we'd, we'd bought ourselves a pug and we'd really integrated into to life in Thailand. But I knew I had to, to get out. My mum and dad had recently divorced and I hadn't seen my dad for two years. My dad had moved back to Dubai. So... I'd started looking for job opportunities in Dubai as I wanted to sort of reconnect with my dad and 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 sort of make amends. How old were you? How old were you then? I must have been 28, okay. 29, something like that. So I'd got on a plane, gone for a job interview at uh, Stefan's restaurant. Uh, got how do the you, job. How do you kind of decide who to target? Like, where do you start? Like, go. I want to get into this, or I want to work. I think at that point my decisions were where do I want to live right. I, I, I'd unsuccessfully tried to get into Japan I'd really wanted to go to Japan but it's a hard place to get a job in and I'd failed on my interview with Disney so Dis I tried to get into Disneyland Japan to be part of their sushi chain which w wouldn't have been what I wanted to do career-wise but I wanted just to be culturally get yeah get into it Japan, would be an, you know yeah, an amazing so experience. I'd gone back to Dubai, got the job, and then on as I'd landed back in Koh Samui and I got off the plane, my wife was there in a moped and she said, oh, you're not going to believe this, but you've got a three Michelin star chef in the restaurant for lunch today. That's not what we talk about. Got on the moped, drove to, to work, and uh, friends who we'd launched the, 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 the restaurant with one of their childhood friends was friends with Annie Fiold, who is the chef proprietor of Eneteca Pinciori in Florence, which is three Michelin star restaurant. And so she was on holiday in Thailand and uh, she'd come for lunch. So I cooked a lunch. That's great. And then <laughs> next day she came back and she gave me some crabs and said, oh, can you cook these crabs? And I cooked them. And on day was three... That, was that something that was, you know, a usual, you know, people could no, just bring you... Okay. No, not at <laughs> just all. But, she, but I think as a chef, she'd gone to the fish markets, right. you know, because the market's open. At, uh, the fish markets are at five o'clock in the evening over there, not five o'clock in the morning. Right. So it's a nice place to go and do, you know, buy your, buy your fish, go back to the restaurant and cook. Right. So she'd bought some crabs and I, I did her this um, crab salad with uh, smoked salmon and mango. And she absolutely went crazy for it. And she signed... And then on day three, she sat me down and said, look, you know, really impressed with the way you're, the, the, start, the Thai staff have responded to you. And I said, like, oh, right. She said, you can obviously cook. And I said, like, oh, thank you, thank you. She <laughs> said, um, we're opening a restaurant in Beijing for the Olympics. Would you like to be the head chef for it? Right. And at that point, I was sort of, what are you talking about? You yeah. know, like, I'm some beach bum sat on, you know, on a beach in Thailand. And it really sort of put me off I was like I don't understand why why you're, you're asking me this and and we got she said well what I need is somebody who can integrate with uh, managing uh, an Asian team because you can't scream and shout and cause uh, Thai people to lose face they they, they won't accept Respond, that yeah. so you need to be a different type of manager and she said look you, you can cook we can teach you the food that we want you to do um, you can come and spend a year with us in Italy and then we'll and, and I was like, well, I've just taken a job in Dubai. Like, literally, I've just got off the plane three days ago. I secured this job with Stefan Butchholz at this molecular gastronomic restaurant. Actually, I've got stuff to do with my dad, and I'm not sure. She said, well, why don't we fly you to China? You meet the guys out there, and you, we show you the restaurant. Now, obviously, I'd traveled China. I'd studied the communist revolution. I was like, okay, well, let's go. So I flew to Beijing, met Huan Li who had, for those who have a bit of historical context, the Legation Quarter, which was built by the Americans in 1908, which is just off Tiananmen Square. Right. And Mao Zedong used all of it, used it as his administration office. It was quite significant historically. Right. Um, so Legation Quarter was had uh, been given over by the, the Chinese for the Olympics as a symbol of them coming out of their communist regime and right. opening up to the world. This was an amazing building and an amazing set of buildings. And they had all these different chefs from great chefs from all around the world who were going to open up there. And I, I got, you know, taken some amazing restaurants and flew back. And I was yeah. like, oh my God, you know, this is Huge. too much. Yeah. You know, right, like, okay. I'm just a, you know, this guy's been living in Thailand. Why haven't they got chefs from their own kitchens? Right. And I said, look, Annie, 
this is amazing, but I need to go and make amends with my dad because I'd fallen out with him. So, you know, yeah. got on the plane, flew to Dubai, got to Dubai, had a great time with Stefan. And how was that transition into molecular gastronomy? Well, it had gone from living on a beach to, you know, the soulless city that is Dubai now, you know, where it's all gold and dripping with money. and it, it was, All air conditioning. That's how I think of Dubai. Yeah, and you, you, you're never outside. <laughs> yeah, it's which I find, hot. and you can't walk anywhere. No. That's what I object to. You have to taxi from one yeah. air-conditioned place. To the, and actually, we'd arrived in Ramadan, and, and I don't know, it just all added up as, you know, and I'd made some amends with my dad, and I got, after three months, I'd sort of learned, I'm not really that into this. Was it a real shift? Because it you're essentially learning it's science when you get to that point. Was there still a passion for produce and how did that I think the thing work? is with Dubai is they have the very best produce, like scallops I couldn't believe, tuna, you know, right. we were buying in bluefin tuna, fresh wasabi, fresh yuzu, you know. Right. The food was amazing, very Japanese leaning, mm. but we're also taking passion fruits and making passion fruit caviar and everything was getting mixed with chemicals and it was all... Which was great, you know, because it was something I wanted to learn. I was motivated to learn those things. But what you realise is there's no seasons. Yes, There's okay. nothing to look forward to. And that's a really weird... And, and actually, I was talking to a friend of mine who's just gone to Dubai and actually just returned for the same reasons. Everything's on your doorstep. Yeah. It's all incredible. But actually, I like asparagus season because it's only at a certain time of the year. Yeah. It rep, you know, I'm sat in here with the sun beaming down us in a new forest. The asparagus is growing just up the road. It was picked this morning. I it, mean, that's special. That's, that is that, something to look forward and to. And that is chefing. When you, when you remove that, it becomes a bit too formulaic and you're managing recipes all the time. And I'm, you know, dyslexic and I think recipes are the bane of, of, of most kitchens nowadays because cooking is, is, is just about time at the stoves and then intuition on top of it. Yeah. And I think when you start removing that, you remove a bit of the soul of the food and the food becomes formulaic yeah. and, you know, the super restaurants You lose the, the love. There's not that personal no. connection. And there's not the warmth of, I'm sitting here conveniently having clams with you that are from down the road and it just feels great and it's mm. something that resonates higher than this technically is a very impressive thing that's just happened you know yeah that taste with this thing and this texture but it all becomes about that stage rather than the real moment of life yeah. and I think okay. I just couldn't sit with that it just felt a little bit too much and then I said to my dad because when you go to Dubai they take your passport you have to I said to my dad, yeah, I don't get my, yeah, don't get my passport back because I, I, I'm not sure. I, want, I think I want to go and take this job in Italy. You know, this, why am I, because I, I, I dawned on me, it's like, why are you turning down, three times you've turned down an opportunity to go and work at a three Michelin star restaurant in Italy and then go and open a restaurant in China. Were you ever scared that you're, you're not up to that standard? Absolutely. Or, it's that really, Com it completely. Well, to you. Completely. You, you're sitting on a beach in Thailand, you know, going to full moon parties, you know. How does that translate? I'm I not up to scratch on this. And then being in Dubai brought my confidence back. And I was yeah. like, actually, I'm back in it. Because in, in Thailand, you know, there's me and it's a matriarchal society. So it's, all, so it's me and three ladies in the kitchen, which is great. But yeah. there's only so far that you can go with that. In what res what respect? In terms of the not not the, the 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 matriarchal society, but what I mean is they're only driven. The ties are only driven to to serve the food. They're, they're not interested in taking the food to another level. Right, sure. They're not you know they're not working you know, on the it, Michelin it, guide. It, or... it's, <laughs> no, they don't. They don't understand it. So even things like teaching somebody how to, to poach an egg. It's like, well, just fry an egg. It's just, you know, I don't understand why you, you want to poach it. Right, right. So I think I'd reached the point where I wasn't cooking anymore. I was just, my restaurant wasn't really that successful because I think I was trying to do Western fine dining in a beach resort in Thailand, yeah. which is totally naive and stupid. Well, no, but, you th but the thing is, you just never know. I always think that so much about what we do in life is actually about timings. Yeah. Because, you know what, maybe now that would actually be a huge success. Yeah. And I, I just think it's about kind of getting, riding the wave when yeah. at the right time and, ca you know, but catching that But has a big part to play because... Because look where you are now. Exactly. And the, the story, the, when you look back at it, it's so ridiculous because... You have to do by you end up in, in But you Italy. kind of couldn't even write that, you know, you're out in this small beach bar in, uh, no. in Thailand and then you're approached. 
So, so what was it like when you got? And had you ever done a stint or travelled out or travelled through Italy and kind of spent time out there? Not really. And I remember, you know, when I we first got to Italy, I had you ever wanted to go to Italy? Because for me. I feel like such a connection and affinity with that. That's my next home. I think home. I wasn't conscious of ever wanting to go to it, but when I got there, I just fell in love with it because it is a antithesis of Dubai. Yeah. Oh my God. It isn't just built. It's, it isn't dripping everything with is history and tradition. Attempting to be good. You know, yeah. it, it's just real. Talk to me about Italy. I just, I can, this is, oh, this is my, this is my happy place. <laughs> well, it was, you know, there's so many levels to Florence. To it. It's a uh, Florence. And, yeah, and so we lived about a 40 minute walk, 15 minute bike ride from the restaurant. We had a, a bakery that's, you know, you talk about great food memories, you know, the focaccia at the bakery next door was still to this day. We, I can't recreate the focaccia we make here is nice, but it, it, it's not, I just can't understand how they, they had big, long focaccia, like three meter long right. things that they put in these other, but Italy. I've got a real passion for focaccia as well. Oh, I'm just... currently addicted to the St. John's one and yeah. I've been making a sourdough version at home and baking it on a pizza stove underneath yeah. so you get the extra crunch. Yeah. But then someone actually said to me, a trick is to flip, so when it's almost baked, is to flip it over yeah. and bake it so you we get do crunch. That. Do you? Yeah. Okay. What else do you do to it? Or maybe you can tell me after something. We do a 48-hour ferment on it so the, the doughs... You taste that sourdough. Yeah, and, it, and also because I, I think... It, I think it needs to have big air. I do. It. it shouldn't be a dense bread. Completely Actually, agree. I think a lot of the focaccia I see in other restaurants that's worked and so it has an even, you know, spread of whole air through it is wrong. Ours is really holy and, yeah. and it's all crunch and no dough. Yeah. And I think that, and all oil and salt. And I think that's totally. the way it should be. Do you know what? I actually messed up my timings um, in terms of doing the kind of the stretching mm. and going through that process I let it rest across it was probably about two and a half days mm. in, in the end and I was like you know what well, let's just see what happens with this it had such an amazing sour yeah. flavour you could taste it yeah. and the crunch the rise everything and the dough just gets you know it gets to a point where it gets so thin and so soft and it, it you know it just is a real pleasure and actually you know what I've been using is your uh, extra virgin olive oil yeah. so the, uh, like the collaboration nice. from Fortuna yeah. uh, Brilliant Vineyards stuff. Yeah. very delicious they're great they're great and that's the thing with Italy is they're quite insular in a lot of ways like when you when you work with the Italians yeah how did that work because so that you've got a language a language barrier well that was the, that was absolutely traumatising actually because I <laughs> when I'm nervous I use humour and I laugh and, and, and same and, I use wit to get me through moments. When you go into a kitchen, you know, as at the standard that Enoteca Pinciori is, where the discipline is 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 as it is, I just kept having, you know, panic attacks in the, in the beginning because really? I just, one, I didn't believe in myself to be up to that standard. Two, I just couldn't communicate, you know, yeah. nobody you know there wasn't it's isolating real, you couldn't connect with people because you couldn't just drop a little quib in there that people mm. found funny it is isolating and i found it really intimidating at first but over a period of time when you started to bond with people i remember what turned the tide was i was allowed to sit at the head table with annie giorgio pinguri and the two head chefs so we would you know and so they're there so they it's their restaurant are they husband and wife what's uh, the or no? they've had they are they've the, the, yeah, I'm sensing something. Uh, I think Giorgio has had a flamboyant lifestyle um, but, over the years. But on paper, is he bound to this woman or no? No, <laughs> I think they 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 were in a relationship for a while, right, and then right. Giorgio's been in lots of other relationships, and Annie has stuck by him all through the years. And they are a wonderful couple, but I think they aren't necessarily. It's an open tied. marriage. <laughs> yeah, it's, for them, and uh, and they you know they don't live together, you right. know. But they are now not anymore. Anyway, they are, they are now sort of partners, you know, business and partners. the business. Yeah, because right. Annie was the cook and Georgia was the wine. Oh, okay. And uh, Annie had worked. You so know, was so you were you working beneath her in the kitchen, and she was. So there was they they had two head chefs. So they had um, Ricardo Monaco, yeah, and Italo Bassi, and they are brilliant chefs. I I still keep in contact with them, uh, particularly over social media. And the other day, I dropped. Italo Alain as my old master with the, with the pasta. I wasn't allowed to, uh, for six months, I wasn't allowed to roll the pasta. I was only allowed to follow the guy who rolled the pasta and touch what he did. That is so brilliant. I, and I, I may have even already said this on a uh, podcast, but in, in Italy, we tried to do like an authentic kind of cookery class. I mean, that just really does entail standing in the corner of someone's kitchen yes. and not touching 
anything. No. And they, 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 <laughs> it's they, like, they're, they're to quite, make you a few notes. But, you know, the, the Italians love it because they're like, you know, we've got the best looking women, we've got the best food, we've got the best cars, we've got the best vinegar, <laughs> we've got the best beaches. Cheese it, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, they, they hate English food, you know, they, and they, for a long time. They and we just go, yeah, great, but we love your food. But they couldn't understand why I was there. You know, my, my fears were also their fears. So when I got into the kitchen, they were like, you know, who's this? idiot you know who's turned up you know wow. and there were people that have been sous chefs in that kitchen for eight years who'd worked at alan ducasse's who'd hoped to, to so get what that level job. did you go in as head chef as yeah but uh, but i my my role at that point was to observe and to learn the food right so i was God, wined incredible. and dined at the weekends i was taken out i get to, you know to, to eat in local restaurants to submerge myself into the culture and and that type of thing which was incredible. incredible and i was just on this first class ticket to success and unwarranted by a lot of the other stuff in the kitchen. We're like, why is this guy you? here? You know? <laughs> and I remember I, I ended up thinking I need to prove myself to them. So the head chefs didn't have to wear a hat, right. but all the other chefs had to wear these big old classic chefing yeah, yeah. hats. We'd had a break and like they, they, they have, they closed the restaurant for the summer holidays and I like came August back. August or something. Yeah. And I, and I put the hat on and I said, just treat me as a commie. And I went on to a sec, the sections to learn all the sections to cook. And I put I all my to. ego aside and just said, I want to eat with the staff. I want to, you know. And how did they respond to that? Much better, actually. And then I started ordering some bits and pieces. So I had to hold the section down. And what I ended up doing was create a eight course tasting menu to, that I served to Annie and Georgia, uh, Giorgio and the two head chefs on my break. At that point, I think the rest of the kitchen could see some of the skills because I, I, I was... I'd done a pork cheek and langoustine annulotti. And oh. I think at that point they took a step back and said, actually, maybe he's, he can't cook because he's nervous. And I could, because things like Italo said that nobody was allowed to speak English to me. I had to learn. And Italian. so did you learn Italian? I learned enough to get me towards the end. I could have a conversation. I'm talking 10 years ago now, 11 years ago now, it's all gone out the, out the window. So but does I, Angela speak? Do you ever. When we've been abroad to Italy to do stuff, I can gauge where the conversation is right, right. but i'm still i you know it's like with another language it's being confident enough to to to, to say something yeah. is the hard part i think i get drunk and i pull out the old a-level french i'm yeah. like i've got it i've got <laughs> it exactly like, what? Like, like, I, I might ask for you know some pepperoncino to go on my pizza see, or something that's a good you accent. know <laughs> that's right yeah that's right you re- that's where you need the well, you don't need the booze, but you know. But that's you know, it, it, was, it was an incredible contrast from the molecular because you think three Michelin star cooking was all about, you know, I thought it was going to be really technical. I thought it was going to be, but it was the complete opposite, actually. It was just produce led. It was so simple, some of the food, like right. gobsmackingly simple, some of it. I just thought, wow, is this it? But what you start, to, what you've got to start to realize, and this is the problem with young chefs in general, is. It's not about technique, it's about produce. And if you could spend more time, you know, understanding what a tra- strawberry should taste like, mm. the rest of your career will be a lot easier. Right. And it's rather than trying to turn, you know, strawberry into something more than what Mother Nature has yeah. put on a plate. And that was, you know, that was inspiring. And towards the end, the restaurant never opened up in Beijing for the Olympics. They fell out with, over the wine list and and... and so my job became obsolete and I was offered a full-time position within the kitchen, but as a sous chef rather than the head chef. Yeah. But at that point, you know, my wife and I had been abroad for four years. We were getting into our thirties. We wanted to start a family yeah. and um, the journey back to the UK started. So you started at Limewood in 2011 mm-hmm. and from 2013, you and Angela Hartnett had this partnership, which is now the kind of, you know, mm. your name, both of your names are above the, the restaurant here. Mm. An amazing collaboration. Tell, mm. Like, tell me how that came about, how it's been. It's a really, you know, this is in well, however many years later. So 11, we're 11 years down the line now, seven years with Angela. Um, you two must really like each other. I love Angela. She, <laughs> uh, you know Angela. So I, I don't personally know. I really would like to. Oh, she <laughs> she would have been here today, but she's just taken a new, she's just got a new puppy and she's actually cooking for uh, Sir Jim Ratcliffe, our owner tonight. So she's, uh, she's Busy, in London. Prepping. Doing, yeah. But she, so Robin Hudson, our chairman, I think is, people often ask me, you know, which chef has had the biggest influence on your career? I'd argue that Robin Hudson has had a bigger influence on my cooking than anybody else because he 
built on a lot of the stuff that I'd learned in Italy of simplicity and being produce led. And when we first opened Lineman, we, you know, we had like a Michelin star aspirations and it was all sort of fine dining and amuse bouches mm. and all the rest of it. And we had a small little restaurant on the side that was, that was uh, an English brasserie. But when Angela joined, we wanted to just go to a one restaurant format. Angela brings a lot of credibility to simplicity. Yeah. And Robin had felt with my time in Italy and he knew Angela and Robin is the master for me at putting the right personalities together. And he'd said, look, you know, we want to do this. What are your feelings? You know, and I had the choice then, do I stick or go? Do I stay and work with Angela or do I go off and... and was there a point, did you, was your kind of nose put out of joint at all? Or did it, did it feel well, like, oh... I was, I was a bit intimidated because there was a, the moment of, well, actually, I've got to make a decision. Do I stay or do I go? Yeah. And then he said, well, go and have lunch with Angela, right? Because also it had to work the other way. Would Angela want to join and work, you know, yeah. with someone like me as well? You know, if you don't know Angela, you know, she is one of the kindest people you, you will ever she meet in your life. She definitely comes across like she has a, a warmth. She, she really is. But when you don't know her, you think she's super successful Gordon Ramsay protégé, right? Mm. And a female in the industry, which wasn't the norm at that time. And so she said, look, come and meet me in Soho and uh, we'll go for lunch. Where did you go for lunch? So we went to four <laughs> I like restaurants. Small, I like the small details. So we went to four restaurants. <laughs> we went to Arbutus for the first course with oh God, Anthony is... Dimitri. Um, but I turned up, you know, I'd, I'd got new clothes and I wanted to make good impressions. So I'd been out shopping and <laughs> turned up 40 minutes early. And if anybody knows Angela, she'll be late for her own funeral, Angela. <laughs> and so I waited. She was half an hour late. So I was sitting there thinking... Checking you, you know, is she coming? Her, is she coming? You know, and then she turns up on this bike. You know, she goes, "I'm so sorry." I'm like, "Hi, nice to meet you." And then we went to Arbutus. We had a, a thing there. And then we went round to see Nevis at um, when Nevis was um, at uh, on First Street, Barafina. Oh, delicious! Um, yeah, <gasps> delicious. Um, and then I think we ended up at Bocca di Lupo, and then we went for an ice cream. Somebody uh, and I want to go on this day. I'm going to get my husband. <laughs> And some other friends that I've got. Honestly, lunch, <laughs> try, trying to have a working interview over four restaurants for lunch with a few, few glasses of wine was brilliant. And I don't think we ever talked about food, really. We just clicked. And I just remember really laughing, you know, towards the end as she got back on a bike. I remember as she rode off and we were a bit tipsy and I, I, I turned around and I just, and I was laughing. I could see she was laughing. I just thought... I want to be around. Angela's got that sort of presence that you want to be around people yeah. like that. You know, they, they make An you energy. feel good. Yeah. You know, and I feel like all that of adds... a sudden the fears just sort of evaporate and it was like, actually, I'm really super buzzing about That's exciting. You know, That's what you want. Her. Yeah. yeah. And it was a great, you know, it, to be honest, it's a great honour, you know, to be, to have your name, you know, like I didn't even know we were going to have our names put together and then, you know, Robin, when we went to the first sort of, you know, once we got past the, yes, it's going to happen, we're all going to, and we went to the first sort of marketing meeting and, and, and we were bouncing ideas around and the HH and co was, you know, came up because we, we wanted it to be a collaboration of more than just one individual because there's a whole team that's, yeah. that's behind, you know, what we do here at Limewood. So it's, it's Hartner and Holder, Hartner, yeah. Holder and co, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And and it, and it just, we just hit it off from there. And I consider Angela a true friend now. And, I, you know, I think there's been moments where I think I've spent more time with her socially than I have sort of professionally at moments. You know, I get along with her husband really well. He's a chef also, right? Yeah, uh, he's a brilliant guy. And, you know, went to the, the wedding was good fun. And, you know, she's a wonderful person. But she, the way that, you know, people often ask, you know, how does the menu work? And, and it's not... And does she spend a lot of time here with you? Yeah, she was here for uh, 10 days before, prior to the opening. Oh, nice. And we don't have a point where we have to put something up to show that we can cook. We, we talk about the the vibe we want to create within the restaurant. Yeah. We talk about, you know, when we're eating out, this is the type of vibe we want to generate. Food is an important part of a restaurant experience, of course, but service is where it's all at. And getting all of the whole thing together, the vibe, that's yeah. 
what makes a great restaurant and the food has to be right the atmosphere has to be right the, the service has style, to be right yeah 100 i'm also curious about how i guess with programs such as seaspiracy cowspiracy mm. and this shift towards sustainability or what is perceived to be you know sustainability there's clearly a lot of alarming content and there's conflicting views on how accurate the reporting is but mm. do you think there is such a thing as sustainable fishing how do you navigate that how do you pivot and respond to these kind of new allegations against you know where it's, the it's really difficult because in some ways in an establishment like Limewood you know when you look at what you're paying at a menu price here the expectation is from the guests that we've done the, the, the you know we, we've done the work we're not going to yeah. serve you a battery farm chicken here yeah. we're not going to serve you a trawler caught piece of fish yeah so at this level the line courts small boats, low impact fishing is what is already embedded in, in the price here, point yeah. and what we do here. Okay. But what is interesting is a lot of the kitchen team and the front of house have come back after watching Seaspiracy and the alarming, these programs get top viewing because they have to be a bit of sensationalist. You know, yeah. there has to be, and there is, it is depra depravities of, of the way that we, we take advantage of, of mother nature. But there is another element that I think is really important. It's like we can't just say we're not going to have fish on the menu because yeah. what about the fishing communities? They've already yeah. suffered. They've already been sold a lie during Brexit. You know, they're already we're, – we're about to embark on a support the shellfish industry section on the menu yeah. where we're going to have stuff, you know, for the Scottish shellfish, which are just not going anywhere at the moment across Europe. And Does it kind of – having watched these programmes and looking at the kind of social response to them, even on a sub subconscious level, do, do you then kind of look at your menu and think, well, you know, we could lessen our fish offering, but then focus it on shellfish yeah. to support this community. We could then make sure that maybe, you know, it's going to be a bit less red meat heavy or this, that, the other. I think you've in hit response. the nail on the head. I think that that is the right approach. And I think also that that goes hand in hand with with customers' expectations. Yeah. I think the the flexitarian attitude now to people's diets and lifestyle choices has to be reflected on the menu. Yeah. We can't just have a meat-centric menu, a fish-centric menu. Plant-based food has to have a bigger a bigger offering within a restaurant. Dietaries have to sit seamlessly on the menu, not making people feel awkward for, yeah. for being somebody who's decided that they're not having gluten for lunch. Totally. And they shouldn't be castigated for having a pizza in the evening. Yeah. We are... You're here to serve and... We're a luxury lifestyle hotel. We have to be responsive to that. Yeah. And I think that you, we definitely, you know, I wouldn't serve tuna, you know, I wouldn't serve, we don't serve foie gras, we don't serve anything, whether that's to the staff, or to, we do consider all of those elements yeah, okay. with, our, with, with our offering. Yeah. I have to ask, because you've also had the Angela & Co pop-ups here where you've had incredible, mm. like, you know, Claude Bossy, Rick Stein, um, Tom Kerridge. You've yeah. had all sorts of chefs come in, cook and be part of the kind of family here at Limewood. Have you got any plans for this year of brilliant people to come and cook and collaborate with you? It's it's tricky just because, you know, the, 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 yeah, the scheduling side of it and everybody's super busy going back. But we, we definitely want to... It is part of the we, we but we're looking at a maybe a, even a smaller, more intimate offering. So what we've done before is we've taken over the whole restaurant. Right. But we, we quite like the idea of uh, of scaling it down to 12 to 16 people where it's a much more intimate experience. I need to be on that inner circle to get the ticket. They are, our industry is full of the most wonderful characters and brilliant people, like, you know, from... Paul Ainsworth, Tom yeah. Kerridge, you know, personal favourite was Michelle Rue, you know, okay. like, because he's been a, you know, a, a big, a big influence in my life from, from a book's perspective and, and, and stuff. And all of these wonderful people, but even Valentine, Valentine Warner, you know, yeah. that guy can cook, you know, and he, he did, is brilliant. Did he do quite a lot of like medicinal home, like, yeah. you know, he would forage and then yeah. be like, you can use this to cure this. And, yeah. yeah. And he, you know, but I think sometimes when you're doing it to a large audience, it becomes a bit more uh, function-led. Right. Whereas actually, we like the idea of allowing, as a chef, you still love to cook and it'd be nice to have, we, we've been toying with the idea of we've got a little cookery school downstairs called uh, backstage and we love the idea of you know maybe you come and spend a night with myself angela tom carriage and his team and we just have the best seasonal produce in front of yes, us please. you sit down we open a couple of bottles of <laughs> yep. wine we chew the fat mm. and we cook 
Right, and it's, tell me how tell me how I sign up to this and so, what it's going to cost yeah, me. Yeah, well, watch this space. <laughs> you know, this is definitely something that we've been planning because I just think that opportunity to sit in an intimate space, yeah, you really know, special. just is something that money can't buy. And I think, yeah. you know, or maybe it can. You know, yeah. So. <laughs> Let me know. One thing I need to know, any favourite restaurants that you go back to time and time again, any little kind of yeah. hidden gems that you love, want to give a shout well, out in to? Italy or Italy, anywhere. here, anywhere. Well, my f- the, the first, when everybody said, you know, the first restaurant I booked. Post lockdown. Yeah, was the Seahorse, Mitch and Matt Tonks. In, that is literally one of my favourite restaurants okay. ever. Is it seafood? Seafood. <gasps> this right. is where my vegetarian husband, this is why I have to take my other friends. But yeah, <laughs> take your food, but you know, he does, yeah. he, they, they cater really well for everybody. Okay. It's on, it's in Dartmouth. It's right on the, on, on the coast. Mitch, I think is probably the greatest hospitality person I know. He right. is good friends with, you know, with Mark Hicks and, 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 and all of that crowd. And they're just real fun. My first, Robin uh, and Angela took me there a few years ago and I didn't know what to expect. I right. you know, hadn't really heard of the place, hadn't met Mitchell, Matt. And the night went from having a nice drink and some really great food to waking up the next day going, Christ, we got pissed the night before. You know, <laughs> and I woke up to a knock on the door and there's Mitch going, here's a shot of Armagnac. Come on, let's go and have some coffee. I'll show you around the town. And nice. he's just, you know, he's got a little outside restaurant that he's setting up again this year. And I couldn't recommend it okay. enough. Oh, that, okay. That's brilliant. Well, that is now firmly on my list. I feel like this is a part of the the podcast that I'm particularly passionate about. Mm. You are going to make me, I'm hoping, mm-hmm. uh, an amazing sandwich, mm-hmm. your go-to sandwich today. And I need to know, firstly, how do you feel about condiments? Any particular favourites? So this is this is and a tough one, right? Because <laughs> people struggle here. It's not so. It's not black and white. It's not because I because <laughs> I, I think I've ended up settling on something that was you know because. A couple of the guys in the kitchen know how specific I like my fried egg on toast to be. Right. right? So, because hang on, I've got a thing here. A lot. I'm watching a lot of chefs do their fried egg. There's no crispy bits. It, I, I, like, I can't stand that. Honestly, I'm so not. Rude. I'm not a set the white no. type guy. I like it. Loads of butter. Fried, but it needs to be crispy, crispy, like rudely crispy. Yeah, for me. and then a little, you know, coating so the yolk goes a little white. Lots of salt. I don't want pepper. any snot. No, I don't want any. Snot. I don't want any snot, and no. I need the crispy bit. Yeah, okay. absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm a part of that. So I toyed with the idea, you know, like yesterday I did, um, you know, but. We, we've messed around with whether we uh, we were going to do this uh, lobster and cheese toasty, right? Okay. And I thought, <laughs> you know what? I, I, I don't even eat that. You know, I'm just trying too hard. And then I started thinking, well, actually, one of my birthday presents as a child, you know, my mum used to say, you know, what do you want for your birthday? Yeah. Was a soy marinated steak on a French baguette with mayonnaise and chilli sauce. How and, old were you? Uh, well, seven and eight, you know, nine. <laughs> and I used to love that. And I thought, well, you know, it's not the weather for it. And I thought, crab... But actually, if I'm going to be really honest, the yeah. sandwich I've eaten the most during lockdown has been a cheese toasted with kimchi. Yeah. Oh, my God. So we're going to Delicious. do one of those today. Okay, amazing. Right? Amazing. So because I, thought, well, I remember when... Um, Is this got, homemade kimchi? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Very so, excited about this. Well, because we, it, we felt real because we were talking with Angela yesterday. She said, oh, I'm going to do the egg and watercress because that's how she loves egg mayonnaise, you know. Yeah. And um, I know, so we, we'd had a few bits, but unfortunately she couldn't make it. But it, it's a really interesting question, you know, the sandwich, because it spun me right out because I thought, well, actually it's context, isn't it? It's like sat at home, outside. It's- breakfast lunch dinner what type because i think this is about cereal as well i think there's breakfast cereal and then there's bedtime cereal and i always put cocoa pops as a bedtime cereal right. not a breakfast cereal okay and i think crunching up cornflakes is a similar thing it's a bedtime cereal not a breakfast crunching cereal. you don't want to start the day too good. sweetly you want the day to end sweetly right 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 i bet your kids love you <laughs> um and condiments Condiments, well, that's the thing. The kimchi is the condiment. Yeah. So we do, we're going to do a black cow cheddar uh, toasty with kimchi on the side. And it, and during lockdown, when you you just can't be asked and you're like, just lost all motivation. It's yeah. cold and wet. You and, you know, this. you're just like, actually, the kimchi was a real bright point. And I thought, kimchi and cheese? Absolutely. A hundred percent. It's delicious. I can't wait to taste it. I'm very excited about this. I'm also excited about lunch and pasta. Um, this has been an utter joy. We're sat out in the sunshine. It's actually really warm now, it's, isn't it? Yeah, I've got about five layers on, so I'm <laughs> yeah. very warm. <laughs> but this has been really so, so fun. It's thank been an you. absolute joy. And thank you so much for even inviting me on. Oh, are you kidding? Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Bye. 
Thank you for joining me this week on The Filling. You can follow me at Anna Barnett Cooks on Instagram for exclusive visuals of my guests' fabulous kitchens and for the recipe to recreate their go-to sandwiches. And of course, subscribe to The Filling on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. The music for today's podcast was recorded by Pony Bones. <laughs>